welcome to the Magnificast, uh, coming to you live from uh, a room in a basement this time at Greenville University. Uh, it's live and the audience is just Matt and me together right now. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we just came from Subway, I ate a lot of carbs and feeling really sleepy right now, but not too sleepy to record this podcast. Uh, if you've never listened to this before, it's a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Uh, my name is Dean Detloff, I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I do uh, work on media and religion and leftism and politics. And I write as a journalist and I make coffee. And sometimes I come all the way to Illinois. <laughs> uh, I'm Matt. I teach media studies at Greenville University. My research interests are uh, cultural studies, media archaeology, and Christian leftist politics. And determining uh, what is soup and what is a sandwich. <laughs> uh, sort of got a really good sort of philosophy of food going on at the moment where everything is either soup or sandwich. Yeah, I That's, like it. Those are the categories that it can be. It works surprisingly well. Yeah, try to think of something that's not a soup or a sandwich. You can't. Nope, impossible. Um, Matt's partner, Shannon, has been trying to do it all day, and uh, man, it's not, not going well for her. No. Nope, feel bad. feel bad for her, but I've, I've got to teach her a lot of really good life lessons today about like <laughs> uh, how salsa is soup and uh, everything else is a sandwich. Uh, yeah. Uh, also, uh, the, the changing states of food from soup into sandwich, uh, for example, like a chocolate bar is at one point a sandwich, but at other points a soup. It's a pretty uh, esoteric but important metaphysics to get your mind around. That's right. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only kind of dualism I allow into my ontology, dualism between sandwich and soup. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast about sandwich and soup. Yeah. Uh, that's it. Yeah, uh, so this week is really cool because Dean is physically here in body and spirit. It's all here. All of it, 100%. Here it is. I'm raising my eyebrows right now. You can't see it on the podcast, but Matt can. Oof, they are raised. Uh, so Dean's here and hanging out, and it's been cool. We did a live show last night with like a handful of students from the university, and we talked about politics and Christianity. And at some point, you'll hear that, just not yet. You're going to hear this one first. You have to. It's mandatory. <laughs> um, but just like uh, always... Uh, I don't know. We're going to do the Marxist stuff, the Christian stuff, and uh, get into it. So this week we're doing a Socialism 101 on the idea of human nature and dignity. These are some ideas that I think carry a lot of weight and importance for socialists and also Christians, and um, definitely the opponents of both, for sure. Too often these ideas are co-opted and weaponized against leftists by conservative Christian forces. Uh, Conservative Christians love to talk about human dignity without ever talking about what it means. Uh, so to combat this, we want to uh, talk about human nature and dignity in a way that's both Christian and explicitly Marxist. But before we do that, we're going to read some iTunes reviews. Hey. It's, it's crazy. We've gone so so long without any new ones, and now we got three new ones. That was because we were complaining so hard last time. Yeah, we've just been begging. <laughs> so keep them coming, or that's we'll do it again. That's all right. Um, okay, so we have three reviews, and they're all pretty short, so I'm just going to do them really quick. Lightning round. Lightning round. All right. <laughs> uh, that was the voice that I used that I now regret. Uh, okay, so uh, <laughs> the first review comes from username Coretto. I don't know who that is, but there you go. Uh, and they titled this review, It's Good, Folks. Five to five stars. Yep. Sometimes it's nice to take a break from the parade of irre- irreverent secular leftist irony-tinged discourse and dive into some irreverent Christian leftist irony-tinged discourse. <laughs> Yeah. Tinged. Just tinged. Yeah. We're not that ironic. No. Serious Christian Marxists over here. <laughs> uh, yep. Cool. Thanks. That's nice. Okay. Another another person with a username, Lyrus. Man, I shouldn't even read people's usernames, but I'm doing it, so whatever. 
they titled their review, Thanks for Your Work, 5 to 5 Stars. You're Form- welcome. Yeah, you are so welcome. Formative for my evolving ideology around Christian anarchy. Great for those I. Great for those who are just dipping their toes into the leftist podcast, but are alienated by <laughs> by the raving far left lunatics. Just you wait, we'll rave. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it's pretty cool. Uh, evolving Christian anarchism—that's a neat thing. I don't know. We talk about a lot of Marxism on this podcast. Maybe someday we'll do an anarchist thing. Yeah. Um, every time we don't know what to do, we threaten each other with doing an anarchist uh, episode, and one of these days, it's all we're gonna have. So. Someday we'll run out of ideas. It's on the horizon. It's not that there's anything wrong with Christian anarchism. Yeah. I think it's just like Dean and I were both there at one point in our lives, and maybe that point in our lives is also embarrassing. So maybe we don't want to revisit yeah. those ideas. It's too much weird baggage. Yeah. <laughs> Someone else needs to do that. Yeah, I think Christian anarchism was cool, but just like for me, it was embarrassing. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Same. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then the third review is by username Canonize Marks Now. Sounds good. <laughs> I'll call the Pope, I guess. Uh, and the, the name that, of their... That red phone in your office, that's where that goes that's to? That's where it goes to, yeah. yeah nice. got the Pope directly. Uh, they named their uh, review The Rock That the Revolution Will Be Built On, which is uh, very good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay, so Canonized Marx Now says, Whether you're a lovely Leninist, a troubled Trotskyite, or a stressed Stalinist, you can rest assured that the Magnificat... The Magnificast, I can't even pronounce the name of the own, po- own podcast. <laughs> you can rest assured that the Magnificast will be... The vanguard of the Christian Socialist Revolution. Kick back and praise the Lord as our hosts relate Marxist theory to Christian theology and end the Christian schisms for the establishment of fully automated, holy luxury, gay-space communism. Oof, that was a good one. That was a good one. That should We should just change the description of the podcast to that. That entire review should be the subtitle of this podcast. Though. Yeah, I think so. Word for word. I really love fully automated, holy luxury, gay-space communism. That's yeah. super good. Yeah. It's got all the good stuff in no it. No Elon Musk's allowed. <laughs> no Elon you're grounded you gotta stay on Venus <laughs> not communist Mars no yeah the new the uh, red rock yeah the red rock in the uh, in the new Wolfenstein game uh, okay so in the in the previous one you get to go to this Nazi base on the moon yeah in the newest one though you go to this um, Nazi base on Venus mm-hmm. so hot base hot base Hot Nazi base. Yeah. Uh, I go there. Spoiler alert, I guess, for all you guys that out there playing Wolfenstein, uh, on Venus is where uh, they make all the Nazi propaganda films. Nice. Go back and listen to that Warren Cinema episode. Yeah, for real. <laughs> uh, there's some good... Dude, Wolfenstein is such a good game. Uh, sorry. That's uh, just a leftover from the conversation we had last night, <laughs> talking about gaming. And guess what? Wolfenstein is very good. <laughs> I've never played it uh, one of these days. Yeah. Maybe it's tonight, it's your, like... Uh, yeah, you never know. It's, like, brutal, man. You kill not lots of Nazis, but it's, like, a really... It's a good game. <laughs> not because you brutally kill Nazis, but not not because of that. Yeah, this is going to be one of those uh, one of those things that gets used against you when the Magnificast is eventually entered as evidence for something in a court yeah. of law. Yeah, the FBI. There's, like, some, some nerd at the FBI writing, oh, he said he liked brutally murdering Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry, nerds. <laughs> sorry nerds <laughs> i don't know all i'm saying is wolfenstein is a great game <laughs> okay neat well thanks for those reviews if you keep writing them um we will keep reading them and we do like reading them because it's a good way to break up this podcast yeah that's holy cow we need that good good content yeah and you got to make it for us and we will reap the benefits oh that's god right. we're actually we accidentally cap- cap- <laughs> no it's a collective effort it's a collective oh, podcast collective effort there we go you all own this <laughs> just to let you know yeah that's it <laughs> well uh i guess i start off on this whole situation um 
Dean and I are kind of brainstorming about what kind of things we might want to talk about, and uh, it seems like a good, a good time to do another sort of one-on-one episode, um, kind of riding that riding that idea from the Fidel and Religion book about, like, I don't know, we don't want reactionaries to use Christianity against working people um, and, like, oppressed classes, so we thought this would be a good time to, like, kick that off. Um, so uh, to do that, uh, kind of get into it here, um, we were just kind of, like, thinking about ideas surrounding human dignity and, like, freedom and uh, human nature. Those are all kinds of words that uh, conservative Christians love to spit out um, and use to, like, discredit socialism and, like, just, like, I don't know, uh, things that they like to use to, like, um, like as talking points against big government kind of things. Yeah, we um, don't have to tell you. You already know. You've heard it a hundred times. You've heard it a hundred <laughs> times. So, um, well, here's a way into this conversation that will be kind of fun. Uh, because it's also Duncan on the Acton Institute. Uh, <laughs> y'all, Acton Institute still sucks. Uh, so here we go. Um, back in August, the Acton Institute uh, published an incredibly bad take on Venezuela uh, that drew out the conclusion that socialism necessarily disrespects human dignity. That was kind of like the punchline of the article. Um, it wasn't funny, though. It wasn't fun. It was a bad joke. Uh, the basic argument of the article is that, like, Human dignity is respecting the freedom of individuals, uh, and since socialism transgresses against freedom, it also transgresses against dignity. Um, okay, human dignity and social uh, socialism and like freedom and human nature are all words that are kind of like left undefined. Uh, here's an example of like kind of the uh, the garbage in this article. Man cannot live according to the designs of socialism because it violates human nature itself. According to the Western view, which we'll get maybe we'll get back around to that <laughs> bit here. According to the Western view, all human beings are created by God and share in the Imago Dei. Thus, mankind has a dignity that all public authorities must respect and preserve. Um, so before we go any further, let's just talk about the Western view. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a pretty contentious term. Yeah, it is for sure. So uh, in the article, when it starts talking about the Western view, it links to another article about like some weird like great books kind of college. <laughs> and it talks about the... Uh, the Western view that holds humans to have like a high dignified status and the low Eastern view. So let's just, I mean, we can just earmark that as like racist. So, yeah. uh, and move on. Yeah. It is. That's really all just worth, worth noting that that's yeah. what they've done in their article. Yeah. Valorizing the West is always, and, uh, every time a racist colonial venture, don't do that. Yeah. Don't trust people who do. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> a good point. Okay. Well, anyways, uh, Dean, what do you think about that? Uh, <laughs> what do you think about that? Uh, human nature, uh, and socialism and the Imago Dei, all of these words, they mean something. I'm not sure what they mean, though. Yeah, uh, well, words are only as good as their use. Uh, I'm a good Wittgensteinian that way. Um, probably a better Foucauldian. Words are only as good as the like power relationships that make them meaningful. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, human dignity. I don't know. What is it? Like you said, they don't ever talk about it in the article. So it's more interesting to ask uh, why is it being used in a certain way? Because, I mean, most people, like, I've heard a lot of arguments for why dignity is a bad way of structuring political discourse. That's probably fine. Uh, but in everyday conversation, if you were like, are you for or against human dignity? Most people would be like, well, I guess I'm for it. I'm for dignity. Yeah. Um, like, nobody's against human dignity. Uh, so to kind of use that as a, uh, um, like, a, a negative thing uh is a really dirty polemical move because you get people on your side without actually doing any work that's right um because you could just as easily say well capitalism doesn't exactly respect people's human dignity either i mean fighting for your survival every single day in a system that 
uh, doesn't actually give you any kind of social mobility or like real life benefits. Um, that doesn't really recognize your dignity either, whatever that might be. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that uh, the ways that dignity and human nature are used in these, um, at least in this Act Institute article and like elsewhere in kind of rhetoric, um, are like enthymemic. So, uh, quick. That's a good word. It's super good. So, like, <laughs> the first thing you ever learn if you ever take a class in rhetoric is this word enthymeme, or maybe even the logic class you'd learn it. An enthymeme is like an argument with one premise kind of implied. And it's kind of a tricky rhetorical move because, like, uh, you can kind of just let your audience fill in the blank for, like, what the implication behind that is. And, like, here you, you see something that's basically that, right? Like, uh, like, if you say that socialism violates human dignity, you can, like, let your audience fill in what it is that, like, human dignity means to them. And then, like, they yeah, just exactly. agree with you. Yeah. So it's kind of like a silly thing. It's definitely a rhetorical turn that, um, I don't know, I can't imagine the author using in good faith because they don't actually define their terms. I would imagine that's a pretty, like, uh, purposeful and <laughs> yeah. a purposeful sort of rhetorical move. Because if, if you, like, start explaining what you mean by human dignity or human nature, like, people might be like, well, that's weird. <laughs> so they don't. Yeah. And then people just agree. Yeah, I think what's so fascinating about an article like this is there's nothing actually convincing in it. Uh, you kind of have to already be on the side of that argument yeah. before finding it compelling. Because if you ever asked of the article, uh, just given the article, what socialism, uh, all it can do is kind of vaguely point you toward Venezuela and not even in any kind of significant or good ways. Yeah. No no ways that even explain why Venezuela is socialist. Um, so it, it sort of rests entirely on assuming that you've already bought the premise, which... I mean, we all do it. It's not like that's unique to conservative capitalists or whatever. Um, Marxists are always using like Marxist jargon just to make Marxists happy. And that's fine. Well, um, I mean, it has a. I mean, on both on both sides yeah. of the issue, it has sort of a utilitarian purpose where yeah. you don't want to like you know every single time you can't argue for like again and again why this is the case. But in a popular article written for like you know an online yeah, exactly. thing, it serves a purpose. Yeah. Um, and it's just important in those kinds of things, uh, even among Marxist discourse, to, like, figure out what an author might actually mean by terms that are sort of assumed to, like, we've all agreed on the definition of this term. Yeah. Um, the Action Institute will never say socialism is good. Uh, so, naturally, it has to be bad, right? Right. That's right. <laughs> well, so what can we make of these kind of contentious terms here? Human, human nature and dignity. Yeah. I love talking about human nature because I don't think it's real. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to lay that out there right in the beginning. Yeah. Um, but one cool thing about Marxism is that Marxists don't all agree on what human nature is either. It's kind of a live problem in Marxist conversations, or at least like a live uh, issue that's up for discussion. Um, so I don't know, this is oversimplifying probably, but there are two, at least two major kind of sub-disciplines in Marxism, humanist Marxists, anti-humanist Marxists. Humanist Marxists like to say that Marx has a really strong view of human nature. And uh, humans are supposed to be free and creative. And capitalism is bad because it stops you from doing that and it stifles your creativity mm -hmm. in the interest of this kind of mechanized hellscape. And uh, so the humanist Marxists are like, you know, if we really want to respect humans, we'll get rid of capitalism. Um, that's one. Anti-humanist Marxists are like, well, uh, human beings are really only as good as what their social relationships say they are. Mm -hmm. And uh, social relationships determine what people think humans are. And we should just have better humans, which means we should have better social relationships. Right. Um, so there's no secret, like, human thing that's being pinned down by capitalism or anything. It's just that capitalism has created, I don't know, creatures that feel really uneasy about their lives. And that's not good. What if we made a system that made creatures feel good about their lives? That would be better. Yeah. 
I think both of those ideas have some interesting merit. I mean, yeah. Personally, I tend towards the humanist side of Marxism um, because I like people. Well, <laughs> I, like, I like people in theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I tend more toward the anti-humanist side, but only because of the uh, um, sort of philosophical baggage. Like, I don't want... I feel like humans are sort of the, you know, products of a lot of social relationships that kind of ebb and flow and you can never really uh point to one thing and be like that's what a human is yeah um that's what a human is for now it's like what a human used to be a human in the future we don't really know what that is yeah no i agree with that too yeah that makes sense i mean like um i guess there's like some some middle grounds even fine between those two terms yeah um, for sure like where humans can be more more or less creative based on like you know where they find themselves and like what social relationships they exist within um, but also, like, what it means to be human kind of trans- it, like changes and transforms over time. Um, the more, like, different possibilities that become open to us, the more uh, different types of people there can be. Yeah, and I feel like that's actually, well, in my own life, that's been the best way to negotiate Marxism as a tradition of thinking. Yeah. Some Marxists get really pedantic about making you choose a side. Yeah. I think that's not very wise. Um, because there's something that both of those interpretations of Marx are getting right about the situation. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I mean, Marx himself was divided on the issue. There's an early Marx who's really humanist, a later Marx that's potentially less humanist. Yeah. Um, so you're allowed to be both, I guess, and be a good Marxist. But um, it's like both of them are talking about real life situations that people kind of feel. Um, sometimes I feel like a human that's really free and creative, and I wish that was more free and creative. Sometimes I feel like a creature that's just kind of brought into being by a bunch of contingent forces, and I wish they were different. So, yeah, you don't need to choose. <laughs> oh man that's that good non-dogmatic marxism right yeah, there. yeah that's right <laughs> well um one of the ideas uh from marx from the early marx the young marx the marx that leninists love to hate uh, <laughs> is uh this idea of species being it comes out um most acutely in the philosophic and economic manuscripts of 1844 um these uh i guess quick i guess yeah quick historical note uh, these manuscripts were sort of like found later, um, long after Marx had already died. And a lot of people, I don't know, just frame these as the, the young Marx before he developed into the full scientific socialist that he was. <laughs> um, I don't really care about that. I mean, like, nah. maybe that's like... They're really fun to read. That was actually my yeah. introduction to Marx was the young Marx. Uh, really romantic, poetic. I don't know, draws you in. Yeah, I agree. Um, honestly, the economic and philosophical manuscripts are probably like my second favorite thing that Marx ever wrote. <laughs> um, it's so wild because, I mean, yeah, they are romantic there. Like, they do, do draw you in. I think they also describe exactly what it's like to work in wage labor. And yeah, for sure. it's so easy to connect to. Um, yeah. I think his description of, like, uh, of alienation is so strong because uh, we all live it all the time yeah that's right there's a great essay in those manuscripts on uh the power of money in bourgeois society yeah and i remember reading that and like it changed my life huh. like holy cow money lets people do things they shouldn't be able to do i yeah. don't like that yeah so uh, it's like very simple and kind of nice in that way too yeah another historical note about the philosophical and economic manuscripts um that i like to think about when i'm feeling unproductive is that mm-hmm. marx wrote them when he was 26 <laughs> bummer well, I, I missed my boat on that already. Yeah, I know. I'm like three years older than Marx when he wrote that, and yeah. like I've not accomplished anything half as good. <laughs> so that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, anyways, if you've never read those, go check it out. Check out like Marxist.org or whatever. Look it up. It's really worth it. The uh, the bit on estranged labor or alienated labor, depending on the translation or whatever, is so cool. Um, there's a bit in there that's just like um, when you're working, you're not at home. 
and when you're at home, you're not at work. And like this sort of funny turn that's just like, um, while you're working, you're just kind of like going through the motions. You're kind of zombified, just living it out. And yeah. I don't know. To me, it strikes such a chord because it's just like, yeah, that is exactly what it's like to work at a job that you hate. Yeah. Uh, that's also something that humanist Marxists really like to talk about alienation. Uh, yeah. Especially, I mean, anti-humanist ones do too, but it, it plays really well in the humanist kind of set of vocabulary because um, the idea is capitalism alienates you from what it means to be a human being. Yeah. Uh, whatever that might mean, you can't really realize it when you're stuck uh, working a, a crappy job that doesn't give you any chance to... Uh, really reflect on your life and your situation in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, in that Acton Institute article, um, there's a lot wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> one thing that's really interesting in, in it to me is that uh, it says that, like, one of Marx's biggest flaws was that he removed spirituality <laughs> from people altogether. Um, and, well, like, yeah, because he was a materialist. So, like, there's a reason <laughs> that happened. Um but what's kind of cool about the uh, philosophic economic manuscripts is that there is this actually kind of like quasi spiritual aspect to it that I think is worth yeah, talking that's about. Right. Um, again, a thing that the uh, you know humanists love, uh, not anti-humanists not so much. But um, <laughs> anyways, the, there's this word that comes out that's kind of a weird one that maybe we can uh, think through a little bit, and the word is species being. Um, humans are species beings, and uh, what that exactly means is. Uh, kind of interesting. You have to read through it kind of carefully to get the kind of emerging sense from it. But Dean, what what's up with the word species being? <laughs> uh, I appreciate that segue. It's really hard. You have to be really careful. To, hey, uh, Dean, what is it? <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, there's a bunch of really cool quotes that we sort of pulled out as we were uh, checking all this out. Um, so one, uh, humanity is a species being not only because in practice and in theory it adopts the species its own as well as those of other things as its object but and this is an only another way of expressing it mark says also because it treats itself as the actual living species because the human treats itself as a universal and therefore a free being uh i'll read another one and then we can okay. chat about them yeah uh another one to help us work this out so Marx writes in creating a world of objects by its personal activity and its work upon inorganic nature, humanity proves itself a, con a conscious species being, i.e., as a being that treats the species as its own essential being or that treats itself as a species being. Yeah, so there's a lot to be said about that. There's a lot of really boring philosophical lineages you could trace uh, going through German idealism, going through Feuerbach, uh, and kind of landing here in Marx in his unique way of picking all that tradition up. But uh, let me take a stab at oversimplifying it, and then you can tell me if it's like you yeah. should add something to that. Okay. Uh, all right. So the idea here is that uh, human beings, um, capitalism forces you to think of yourself as a sort of isolated individual. So if you think of modern kind of liberal ideas of what humans are, liberal in like a philosophy sense, not in just like a dang liberal sense, <laughs> um, humans are essentially individuals who like meet in fields with no other contexts and they like make contracts and make deals as fully formed rational adults and they go away and they do it somewhere else. Uh, the idea being that they're all isolated all the time. You're free to just do whatever you want because you're an individual. That's what it's like to be in a capitalist society. Uh, Marx is basically calling bullshit on that as a real thing. Um, so Marx is saying actually humans find themselves as uh, participants in a broader whole of a human community, a human family. And what that means is you identify with that human family sometimes, sometimes you don't, but you're part of it either way. 
and uh, capitalism tries to sort of force you out of that experience. And that's, for humanist Marxists, really dehumanizing. Uh, it, t- it takes you out of what it would mean to be human, which would be to identify with uh, a common uh, species. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I think that's a, that's a good way to start thinking about it. Um, there's the, the last part of that, that first quote you read is really interesting. Um, uh, he treats himself as the actual living species because he treats himself as a universal and therefore free being. It's kind of the sense that like, um, it's, it, maybe it's, it's just so it's hard for us because of liberalism, I think, and capitalism. Yeah, but, that's right. Um, but like we recognize ourselves in other people and like we recognize ourselves being a part of a larger community, a species. And like we identify our being with that larger species. Um, we recognize that people like other than us have like similar desires and emotions and like, you know, exist like we do and that's like a pretty fundamentally interesting distinction that we make that maybe other creatures don't i don't i have no idea yeah who could say who can say man <laughs> i don't know like what squirrels think about other squirrels <laughs> if they have like squirrels being uh, <laughs> but uh, i like i like to mention dolphins have like pod being yeah no that's true though i mean yeah. like they there's a sense of cohesion between them as a species and like the others as species um yeah, or like elephants mourning dead elephants. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's something really sort of amazing about that. Yeah. Um, in one of my classes today, I mentioned very briefly uh, vampire squids and how crazy <laughs> they are. Uh, vampire squids are, are wild because they, like, don't have species being. That's all right. Um, uh, vampire squids, uh, they only interact for two reasons. Okay, this is, I think, true, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm not a vampire <laughs> squid expert, but, like, kind of I am. <laughs> but uh, as far as I know, they only interact for two reasons, and that is to mate or eat one another. So, like, they're they're creatures that have no species being. They have no no sense of group cohesion. And maybe we could probably draw out some really interesting uh, ideas about that. I mean, they live in complete darkness and also... Um, in like a, a zone where there's no oxygen, basically in the ocean. So like <laughs> they, that are literally inhospitable to human yeah, life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I mean, they're like so they're so wildly different. They are like at the opposite pole of uh, species being. Right. It's like yeah. so different from. They have no sense of like group or no sense of like they they could never see another uh, vampire squid and be like, oh yeah, you're let's what's hang. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> more like let's do it and I'll yeah. eat you. Let's um, uh, build the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, anyways, so uh, the point is, though, that, like, we, like, recognize ourselves as a part of a whole, and uh, that's fundamentally interesting, and capitalism, I think, tries to break us from that. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to think this through in terms of what that article is arguing, right? That socialism uh, fundamentally denies human nature or human dignity or whatever. Yeah. And I think what's so cool about negotiating the differences among Marxist opinion here is that... um, that opinion uh, expressed in the Acton article is dumb for at least two reasons, depending on which side of that debate you fall on. Uh, so the one side is like, um, if you're a good humanist Marxist, actually socialism is the only way that you can sort of affirm human nature in its uh, plastic and important fullness, right? So humans can change, but they do so kind of together, working together, etc. Uh, if you're a good anti-humanist Marxist, um, well, socialism denies uh, a certain idea about human nature but it doesn't therefore deny that human beings are important Uh, it just thinks that having an idea of human nature as you have one in capitalism uh, fundamentally oppresses people because it's the idea itself that motivates the system Um, so i think regardless like the claim just sort of falls uh when you poke at it a little bit the acting claim yeah (laughs) um what about that second quote the uh okay in creating a world of objects by uh by his personal activity in his work upon inorganic nature, man 
okay, I, the gendered language, sorry. It's, you know, from the <laughs> 1800s, so what, what can we do uh, other than acknowledge that sucks? Um, man proves himself a conscious species being uh, as a being that treats the species as his own essential being or that treats itself as a species being. There's a little bit more, I guess, like uh, abstract thinking here, but you still get the same kind of idea um, that uh Humans have some type of social cohesion and connection that are, I think, fundamentally defined by uh, social relationships Mm -hmm. um, and maybe made better or worse by those social relationships. So um, the the phrase that really sticks out to me, though, is that like um, that humans treat the species as their own essential being. Like there's a recognition just like that, that people are the same, (laughs) which seems like silly. And like, I feel like I keep saying that over and over again, but like. It should be a kind of a radical idea because we don't treat people like they're saying. We live in a world where we think that we're like vampire squids and like we don't need anybody. Yeah, that's um, right. But that's not true. We need solidarity. We need <laughs> friends. We need comrades, etc. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think there are some kind of weird things about species being that can be potentially dangerous. I don't know. Maybe this will be my like uh, <laughs> my mea culpa to yeah. folks who are listening and just like <laughs> put, tearing their hair out right now. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Species being can be oppressive, right? Because sometimes you don't identify with the species that you're part of. And like that sucks a bunch. Uh, also, those kinds of hard um, universalizing tendencies can underwrite some really bad habits in Marxist communities. Yeah. Um, but... I do think that, nevertheless, there's a there's something being expressed here, right? And the most important point is probably the critical one. You know, however you come down on the affirmative point is sort of uh, up for grabs. But the critical point seems to be the same all around, which is that capitalism makes for bad relationships between human beings. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's pretty clear why this is from a section to an essay about estranged labor. Like, yeah, that's right. Um labor uh alienates us from ourselves and from our connections to other people and that's um kind of like the point that's why it's bad yeah exactly (laughs) well uh there's another kind of part of this quote that i read earlier from the acton institute and i think that a lot of the acton institute uh article i don't even want to say who wrote it i'm not gonna do it yeah don't even yeah um anyways a lot of the article relies also on the idea of the imago Dei, and that's kind of like a really interesting christian idea that i think is good but it's being interpreted in this really weird way here. Or you sort of enthymemic in a way that, like, mm-hmm. it's supposed to say something, but people read it and, like, oh, that's a Christian word. I, yeah, yeah. I love that. That's right. Oh, boy. I love <laughs> wow. the... That word's in Latin. <laughs> phrase. They're so smart. It's Latin. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, the Imago Dei is so wild, too, because it's just a term that Christians don't know what they're doing with it. Yeah. Uh, even theologians are like, I don't know. This is kind of my best guess right now. And either they have like a really weird biblical thing or they have a really weird kind of theological thing. Um, <laughs> like one time, I, this was like a thing I was really into when I was an undergraduate, the Imago Day. And I just remember like asking all my professors at this Christian university that I went to what they thought of it. And they all had wildly different answers, but they were all really smart Christian people, right? Yeah. Uh, which I think just goes to show it's, I don't know, it's a term that you kind of have to make meaningful for yourself, like so many other things in Christianity. And yeah. uh, to see how it gets deployed in polemical, argumentative essays uh, is important because you have to ask what someone is trying to say with it or what someone's not trying to investigate with it. Yeah, well, here's something that's kind of cool about Imago Dei. So it's not like I'm not a theologian. I'm like barely a philosopher. Yeah, same. Um, <laughs> so like, I don't know. I hear the word. I'm just like, and I do think like, oh, boy, it's in Latin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but like, uh, here's kind of like uplifting story. And it's something that kind of recontextualized the word for me just like very recently. So um, if you guys have been listening to the podcast over the fa- past few like months, uh, past semester, you have heard me complain endlessly about basically my teaching load and everything else. And like, <laughs> oh, man. 
But anyways, uh, you, you also know that I've been teaching this class on incarceration. So that class is like basically over now and uh, my students presented their final papers on it and it was really awesome. Um, in one of the presentations uh, that my students were trying to figure out, I, I guess trying to explain exactly why um, the incarcerated should matter to Christians. And basically what they said was like, I don't know, it's the Imago Dei. Like, um, <laughs> that like nice. everyone has like the image of God on them and it kind of gives them this sort of universal reason to care for them and stuff like that. And like they kind of used it in a way that I guess you could say is kind of like the Act Institute. Like you should care about people because they're made in the image of God. But uh, in the context of incarceration, it kind of works differently because it's caring for people, but not like um, not in a super idealistic way. Because they're at, they're like talking about how you get people out of jail. Like right. that seems actually very material and not not idealistic at all. Um, so I mean, like we you have to recognize that like Christianity is to a certain extent like an idealistic religion. Like it, yeah, for I don't sure. know. Like we've talked about this before, and like I don't know exactly how to reconcile that, but like you can. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so Imago Dei is that type of thing, though, where it is, like, idealistic. It's, like, a descend like humans have worth because, it, because like, they look like God. Um, so, like, in some senses, that is super idealistic. But um, if you think about Imago Dei in terms, in terms of incarnation, like, it's actually pretty material. Um, just like the, the prisoners uh, in, like, incarcerated in the United States, uh, quote, justice system, are, like, real physical people that have real physical needs uh, to show them... Uh, to like to demonstrate an ethics or like care based on the Imago Dei means to show like real physical concern for those people. Um, and just like, uh, I don't know, Jesus was a really incarcerated, uh, no, nah, Jesus wasn't incarcerated. Like, like, <laughs> like Jesus was a, a real, bit. yeah, well, I mean, a little bit for a, a bit for a few days, yeah. Jesus was in incarnate, like you know, incarnate in the sense of like of being a material being <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, and not just like a spiritual, like, uh, ghosty guy or something. Um, I don't know. We can draw some, I think, really good materialist uh, ways of thinking about the image of God in people. Yeah, that's right. Um, also, as you were talking, sorry, I was looking at my phone, but I was uh, I was looking up um, Acton Institute takes on private prisons just oh, yeah? to see how the Imago Dei might function there. Yeah. Um, surprise. I don't know. It's not great. Um, <laughs> but suffice it to say, like, the Imago Dei matters when, I guess, I don't know, socialists are, uh, like, trying to build a social society in Venezuela and they're having a hard time. Uh, but the Imago Dei doesn't matter uh, when people are, like, incarcerated for probably, you know, systemically stupid reasons. Right. So. Do they have any takes on private prisons? I mean, they're, so the Acton Institute isn't, like, a unified um, brand, I guess. Uh, but there are, uh, <laughs> if you'd like to Google around, there are plenty of individual folks arguing for private prisons uh, on from, the grounds. That, from the Acton Institute? Yeah. On uh, the grounds that, like, uh, hey, they would do it really well because, you know, they can have, like, a personal relationship with prisoners. That's not even a joke. Man, private prisons are so dumb, though, because, like, you're making money off the incarceration of people. That's, like, so – it's, like, it's like uh, capitalism is exploitative, and then, like, uh, private prisons are doubly exploitative. Yeah, exactly. Uh, don't do that. Don't do that ever. That's so <laughs> stupid. Uh, yeah, so Acting Institute doesn't care about the Imago Dei, whatever it is. That's yeah. My, that's my take. Not consistently enough. Whatever the Imago Dei is, uh, the Acting Institute isn't actually interested in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's my polemical use of it. Yeah. That's my, uh, whatever that rhetorical term was that you used earlier. Enthymeme. Yeah, that's my enthymeme. Heck yeah. Uh, <laughs> in some ways, though, it seems like the Imago Dei, like, as an idea, is kind of tied to, to species being. Yeah, maybe. They're like kind of similar things where you're, like, recognizing sort of a commonality between all people, like a universalizing principle behind, like, um... You know, you should care about people because, like, they are, like, God image stamped or whatever. Yeah, that's true. And because they're a part of your species. I don't know. Seems kind of the same thing to me. Yeah, for sure. Why not? 
I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's... Uh, cue, cue the wrath of a thousand biblical scholars yeah, yeah. Uh, emailing us about that. Yeah. Um, all, <laughs> all you dudes out there who think that we don't do a very good job with uh, exegesis. <laughs> hey, we don't. <laughs> Confirmed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, so I do want to say one more thing about human nature, though. Just, like, uh, brutally segueing us right back to where we came from. Um, so there's a lot of cool stuff in Marx about human nature. There's a lot of cool stuff in Christianity about human nature. The Imago Dei is maybe one way of sorting that out or something. Uh, but one thing I really like is, um, I don't know, I have all this weird stuff about how human nature is really plastic. That's the thing I wrote my MA on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, the coolest thing about talking about human nature is we get to ask questions like, what kind of humans do we actually want to be? Yeah. And what kind of humans do we actually want to sort of help usher into the world? And that's, I feel like, such a Christian idea, right? What kind of people are churches sort of supposed to form people into? Yeah. Uh, and what kinds of people are other institutions forming people into? Uh, I think there's one way of looking at that question that some sort of conservative writers that I won't name uh, are into where they'll say, well, the church should form itself uh, or form people that oppose like consumerism, right? So the church has this kind of formative function. It's creating moral subjects in contrast to consumptive subjects. And that can seem like a really radical move. And in a way, it kind of is. I mean, yeah, you should be like a morally evaluative person before you're a consumer. That's true. Um, but so often those kinds of questions don't go a step further by asking like uh, what kinds of persons would actually be willing to like change an entire mode of production such that it wouldn't be producing consuming subjects in the first place that you wouldn't have to combat. Uh, we talked about Christians for Socialism a long time ago, and I'm never going to stop talking about it. Yeah, and, this uh, is it forever. Yeah. <laughs> what I love so much about that project is that's basically what they're suggesting, is like for the first time in Chile, we finally have a government that's trying to form human beings that aren't consumptive, like, you know, producers and consumers, and that's it. Uh, and as a church, like, we're going to help them produce people that are willing to, like, work together toward different ends. And I think talking about human nature in that kind of way um, with a sort of more open-ended perspective is, is a really good thing that Christians can get behind just as readily as like Marxist. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I know the, I mean, speaking from my own Protestant experience and like the understandings of human nature, right? Like Protestants love to think that humans are just like very bad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I guess Catholics probably do too, but that's like not my experience. So who knows? Uh, but you know, like, um, Total depravity and those kinds of ideas, um, and like even like original sin just kind of paints uh, paints humans as like just initially bad things. Yeah, for sure. And like I don't know, I don't know if like humans have a proclivity towards sin or something. I don't really know if that's true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, like all those theology nerds out there, probably screaming, but whatever. Uh, don't care. <laughs> Come say it to my face or on Twitter. Uh, no, just again, keep it to yourself. Um, but. Something that the church does or has done historically is, like, spiritual formation and moral formation. And, mm-hmm. like, it's actually good at that. I don't know. Um, like, using a Foucauldian sort of term, an idea, but, like, uh, like discipline is good. Um, mm-hmm. It makes people, like, what they are. And that, that's how you do it is through sort of regimes of discipline. And everybody has one. It's just that some of them are obvious and some of them are not. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. Yeah. I mean, so, like, discipline, we usually just think of, like, as a really negative connotation about, like, you know, your dad has a belt or something and he's going to, like, you know, you're in trouble for stealing cookies. I, that, 
That's a weird childhood, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a bad dad. No, that's not my experience at all, actually. (laughs) Uh, No, but, like, you know, the idea, or, like, a a really authoritarian regime, like, you know, you have to, like, or, you know, like, the the caricatures that people paint in North Korea, that's, like, what you think of discipline as, like, everyone has to have the same haircut, which is, you know, completely stupid American propaganda. Right. But um, the idea instead is just, like, I don't know, the things that you do sedimented over time have a real effect on, like, your life and church is a part of that for sure right right it's one of those factors alongside like alongside work and alongside consumption that like have some kind of impact on your life so let's just let's try to make different people yeah we should make different people i agree 100 <laughs> percent. yeah <laughs> <laughs> the ones we have are not that great not great. i would like to be a different person so. yeah well you can't <laughs> but you gotta go to church yeah well i try i try my best <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so i don't know like I think one reason that talking about human nature as a kind of one-on-one episode is really interesting is that um, a lot of objections that anti-communists have uh, revolve around capitalism being sort of the one system that respects human nature or agrees with it or whatever. And that take is so bad. Um, (laughs) Derek Ford had a really funny tweet a while back uh, just recently where he said something like... um, (laughs) Uh, I wonder what the um, like what the innovative uh, motivation was for the first people who discovered fire, yeah. who made fire. And I thought that was like so great because obviously uh, I don't know in that like mythology of humans discovering fire there wasn't capitalism, but yeah. like they did it anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, I like that so much because I feel like people have a duty to basically be like, listen, talking about human nature is not a defense of capitalism because there's no human nature that actually underwrites this. We There have been times in history where people weren't capitalist. Yeah. Uh, there will be times in history when people aren't capitalist if we survive. Yeah, that's if, right. If we survive capitalism. I so. mean, post-apocalypse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, it's just, like, good to keep pressing that because it isn't the case that capitalism is somehow, like, defined by God in a law that ordained the world. I mean, that's not only theologically dumb, but historically obviously untrue. Yeah. Um, I think the Acton Institute, well, at least this article and others, uh, some of their problem, too, is that they valorize the West, right? So yeah, they think exactly. that, like, uh, of course, of course they are, because the West is all the good ideas and <laughs> whatever. So, yeah. um, Which is actually uh, a really self-defeating argument, right? Because if it's just human nature to, like, believe in that, then why would the West believe in it and other places don't? Uh, <laughs> this is d- the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, basically, it's uh, very stupid. <laughs> Uh, daily reminder: Acting the is dumb. And uh, if you don't hear it tomorrow, say it yourself. Be the daily reminder you want look to see in, in the world. Look in your mirror and repeat: <laughs> Acting astute is dumb. Yeah, but don't do it three times with the lights off. Oh my gosh, they show up behind you. Yeah, that's and right. And they get and then they get you and they like. It's just your boss. Yeah, it's just your boss. <laughs> and uh, he says, uh, "You got to work more hours this week." Yeah, that's right. For no pay. Yeah, Acting astute, love that. <laughs> You're in prison. Um. One more note about this article that I think is really funny um, that actually has nothing to do with uh, the topic at hand. <laughs> did you know that there's actually a person named Lord Acton and that's where the name comes from? Yeah, I do. Oh my uh, gosh. I love that it's Lord Acton that uh, free market capitalists like, are always quoting. Right, like, so, like, does that not strike them as completely ironic? Like, oh, Lord Acton says this. Like, <laughs> he was a, like, he must, like, you know. He's a, a guy who said, like, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, like, also, like, a leftover of, of like, a, uh, <laughs> a, a defunct feudal system. Yeah. So. Maybe take your cues from someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about dignity really quick. Okay, yeah. Let's talk about dignity really quick. Okay. So the one thing that's left in this article that we haven't quite referenced yet is the idea of dignity and that socialism necessarily transgresses it. 
So uh, if we kind of read between the lines here in this Acton Institute article, it seems like dignity means something like has something to do with freedom. I'm not 100% sure like what about freedom. Uh, like human rights. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Yeah, it's it hard to tell. That Venezuela thing. Right. So it's not exactly clear what they mean by the word dignity. Um, and like you said earlier, maybe dignity isn't the best way to talk about politics, but I think it's one way to talk about it, at least from the standpoint of humanism. Um, what does it mean to be a person with dignity? And how do you recognize that in someone? I think that the Acton Institute would probably default to some kind of explanation about, like, you know, freedom to make economic choices or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like rights-bearing individuals or something. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think that there's an idea of dignity that can come from a Marxist uh, point of view? I don't know, man. It's hard to say. I'm not on the dignity train, but probably. Why not? Yeah. Uh, I know, like, the one thing that dignity has going for it is that it is a term with moral weight. Uh, like, it still has moral weight. Yeah. And that's important rhetorically. I mean, whatever you think about it philosophically, it makes people think about things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like if Bernie Sanders gets up at a rally or whatever and he talks about how, like, people don't treat the poor with dignity, everyone knows what he means. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, that's an enthymeme as well, but yeah, exactly. that's okay because it's Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, dignity is a weird term. Uh, I feel like dignity is a weird term because it's sort of a defensive term, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But defensive terms can be useful if you're a marxist like yeah. the dignity of the poor should always be respected but the trouble is it gets uh co-opted in these discourses on things like venezuela right where yeah. um people are getting injured and killed in struggles for socialism right yeah. and uh the trouble is dignity only ever cuts one way when conservatives use it yeah um it only ever cuts against people who are um I don't know, like standing up for systems that don't respect people's dignity. Yeah. If you want to play the dignity game. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, it's a weird word in that way for me because it kind of just gets sucked up into these really weird um, esoteric, like linguistic games. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think two things about it. Um, So, first of all, the word dignity always makes me think of my life verse. Do you know that if you're Protestant, you have to have a life verse? Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure I was supposed to have one at one time at, like, Cornerstone University, but I couldn't tell you what it is now, so now it's over. Yeah, mine is, a workman is worth his wage. Nice! I like that. (laughs) It's a good one. It's, you know, a great verse, uh, and I love to quote it at people. Um, (laughs) I guess uh, it makes me think of dignity because um, it means that you should be paid for your labor. I think that's really important. Um, and you know, when it was probably written, they didn't think about it in terms of like <laughs> owning the means of production or something, but I think you could, I think it incorporates yeah, why that. Not? Yeah. Why not? Um, one other note about dignity that I think is worth mentioning too is, uh, one time I saw Richard Gilman Opolsky, uh, he was, it was, uh, the guy that wrote Spectres of Revolt. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all know him because we <laughs> talk about it constantly. Uh, one time he, uh, went to a bookstore and kind of gave a talk about one of his new books. It wasn't the Spectres of Revolt one. It was the, it was a, his book, Precarious Communism. Anyway, so he gave this entire talk that was about the idea of dignity and labor. Uh, and it was pretty cool because uh, basically he was just like, um, dignity is when people have the ability to self-determine their own lives and their own labor. So not that's just cool. like, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a more helpful way of framing the term dignity or maybe a, like a way to define that term in a way that is explicitly leftist and Marxist. Yeah, for sure. Um, so if that's the case, then um, then dignity means like having like the, a means to like like to live yeah (laughs) and to choose whether or not you want to enter into like an exploitative relationship with like some type of corporate power yeah that's awesome determination part i think is key there and the challenge back to these kinds of conservative defenses of dignity on that grounds at least is that uh people don't have that uh space in capitalism despite the fact that capitalism says that they do and that's the important thing to kind of keep pressing yeah 
Um, so I think that the thinking of dignity in terms of economic freedom is kind of interesting, but maybe a different type of economic freedom. Like dignity yeah. is like being able to live your life and not have to like work in a call center and like, yeah. you know, uh, or like, you know, not have to like go to your job at Taco Bell and pretend you like it. Like yeah. to live a, live a dignified life is to live one where you don't have to be exploited every single day so you can make it. Yeah, that's right. I like that. Sure. I'll take that dignity. Are you on the dignity train now? No. But, Choo-choo. But What's if happening? I had to be, that's yeah. the car I would get in on. All right. Sounds good. It's a good, <laughs> it's a good car. It's the dining car. Oh, and nice. it's just full of. The dinity car. <laughs> yeah, I thought that's something would come that's out, not... but it didn't. <laughs> There's nothing there. No. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> it's, a, it's the subway coma. It's really hitting me right now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Magnificast. Uh, if you haven't already, you should follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, because we update it now. It's a thing we do since we noticed we didn't do it. Uh, follow us on SoundCloud. I still don't know what you do on SoundCloud. I don't know the social media aspect of that one. I don't even think I follow us on SoundCloud. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't, I don't think I do anything. Um, follow, uh, like us on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Again, don't know how that works. But what you could do that would be really helpful, that would just be really great, is you could give us, like, a dollar on uh, Patreon. Or you could also just give us, an, a, like, a comment or a, a review on iTunes. That would be good. That would be good. Uh, t-shirts, that's still a thing that's happening. We're yep. getting them, getting those T-shirts. They're happening. We're working it out right now. But you can pre-order them. going to be so cool. They are. Uh, that's pretty good. Buttons still on the way. Uh, one of these days, you'll see one in the mail. Yeah, man. Sorry, the end of the semester has been so crazy, and I just haven't yeah. done it. It's pretty rough. Yep. Cool. Anyways, thanks for listening. <laughs> see you next time. Here's the illogical spoon. I don't wanna get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up